Hey, welcome back to another installment of the Wide Ride Podcast. I'm Manny Navarro, Miami Hurricanes beat writer for The Athletic. It is Tuesday, August 8th, 2023. Uh, we are officially, I think, in the second week of fall camp. We've passed ACC Media Days. We've gone through Miami Hurricanes Media Day. Uh, I've gone through high school media days in both Dade and Broward County. Carlos, I'm talked out. I just want to see football already. Apparently, I'm talked out, too, because I had uh, the mute button. Up. So I, I didn't want to say anything about it. But yeah, man, listen, summer's coming to a close. It sucks. We all feel it. I mean, as as dads, we have girls in school and uh, we know how fun it is to have them all in the summer and be able to go on vacation with our family and do stuff together and have time that we normally don't have. And it sucks that that's all coming to a close. My wife and my daughter are taking advantage of that right now. They're actually at the movies watching a new Barbie movie together uh, while I thankfully avoided that saying i had very important things to do uh, <laughs> really talking to you but um yeah man the only the only good thing about it is pretty soon we're going to see people on the field actually banging heads and then clapping some pads together so i'm excited i can't wait for things to start I'm, I'm done hearing about who looks good in practice and this guy had a great day and i keep hearing good things about this position group or that position group you know, none of that shit matters until they get on the field because we've heard so many times about so many things. I mean, I saw an article the other day about uh, DJ Ivy tearing it up in, in camp and practice. I'm like, you guys haven't seen DJ Ivy in a game yet. You heard all that DJ <laughs> Ivy's looking great in spring. DJ right. Ivy's looking great in practice. And then uh, it's a different DJ Ivy when, uh, when the lights come on. But, you know, it is what it is, man. Hopefully he's doing well, but for real. And he has a great career there. But uh, I'm just ready for some real football. I'm tired of the talk. Yeah, I mean, preseason action in the NFL is getting going. Unfortunately, in college, we don't have the same thing. So, uh, you know, we have a bunch of people who go out to practices and, and take uh, video of, of guys in shorts and, and making profound statements, like you said, that uh, some such and such guy looks great in practice. I, I'm not going to get into all that. I know some fans enjoy it. They want to be told such and such guy looks good. Reality is, I, I've been at this close to 30 years now, Carlos. Everybody looks great in shorts. Everybody looks so much better this time of year because their bodies are healthy. And well, let's, uh, let's be honest, Manny. You and I don't look that great in shorts. But uh, no, we, what you mean by football players? Yes, <laughs> yes, by football players, absolutely. Um, and the reality is, you know, the big story right now in college football has nothing to do with how guys look in shorts. It has everything to do with uh, the guys in suits and their greed and trying to. Uh, you know, change the game forever and in and, and realignment and uh, the breakup of the Pac-12, uh, you know, the ACC looking for, for more revenue. Florida State wants out. Clemson wants out. I know Miami does as well. They want more money in their TV deal. But the reality is the TV networks are tapped out. You know, ESPN and Fox and ABC and all all the, you know, all the different channels have basically poured in a ton of money. Uh, to the SEC and Big Ten invested a ton of resources in that. And right now you have a situation of have and have nots. And uh, I know fans are very much interested in that subject. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Uh, we'll talk about Lawrence Seymour transferring out of Miami, what that means. He was a backup offensive lineman, but one of the top uh, linemen that they had on their team as far as recruits. Obviously too small. He's gone now. I'll, I'll provide a little more insight on that. Um you know, Daryl Jackson, who transferred to Florida State, uh, the, you know, started 12 games for Miami last year, denied an NCAA waiver. Uh, so a former Hurricane isn't able to play. Tez Walker, who's one of the top receivers at North Carolina, another transfer. He's denied 
a waiver to play this season. So some interesting storylines sort of building up around uh, the ACC with waivers. I think we kind of got used to the NCAA just approving everything last year, right, for undergraduates, guys that uh, still had to graduate. And, and so now we're starting to see a little resistance there. Florida State's recruiting class is doing awesome. They're up to number four. They've got three five-stars now. Florida's number three. Miami's distant 18, 19 away, not getting all the superstars that they want. And not getting crystal balls for, for guys. So, look, there's a lot going on. High school media day. I was out there. I mentioned there's 25, you know, 2025 and 2026 guys. I know Miami's very interesting. I got some info there. But we're going to start with realignment, Carlos. And I know you're not necessarily a big Pac-12 after dark guy. But what do you think of what's happening? <laughs> I, was, I was before I was married. <laughs> <laughs> what? what what do, you, what do you think of what's happened with college football before we get into Florida State, Miami, and what could happen with the ACC? Listen, I, I think like anything else, I think you're seeing a, a lot of consolidation and running to where the money is, and everybody wants a piece of the pie, and everybody's trying to figure out ways how to get access to that larger piece of the pie, right? And the, the only way right now to do that is through conference realignment to create super conferences, and it's... It's sort of like everybody's fighting for their own self-interest in terms of individual universities um, and the hell with the smaller guys, right? And at the end of the day, the ones that are going to suffer the most from all of this are the mid-majors and, and, yeah. and you know, universities that don't have those major boosters, major uh, sort of TV draws as, as the larger teams in these conferences do. Um, even some of the smaller teams within larger conferences are going to suffer greatly. Like a Vanderbilt's going to suffer. Other teams are going to suffer. Eventually those teams are might be edged out for other members to allow the conference to get bigger and that pie to get larger as well. To me, the interesting thing is, you know, based on the way things are trending in society and how we watch things now, how is that going to affect those TV deals? How much revenue are these companies really going to be able to pour into these conferences long-term if maybe ad revenues just aren't there anymore the way they used to be because of the way people are starting to watch things via streaming, via their phones, via their laptops, via their 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 tablets, and turning to more things like you know YouTube, Twitter, and other places to access media and information or streaming services. So, I mean, who knows if this is a sustainable model? At some point, maybe all this breaks down five, ten years down the road, and maybe these you know TV networks can't even pay that money out anymore because it's not financially feasible. But who knows? College football is always king. Football is always uh, you know huge in this country, regardless of what happens. And there's always going to be dollars available. But I don't know if it's going to be the the large amount of dollars or these astronomical dollars that they've seen in the past. Um, we'll see what happens. But at the end of the day, for teams to survive now, for universities to survive in larger conferences or to even compete for national championships, they're going to have to be part of super conferences. Um, and it's almost going to be like a de facto professional level at this point, based on how they structure things. There might also, there might just be, you know, two or three conferences that compete for a national championship that are mega conferences and they act as if they are the uh, minor league of the NFL, whereas the rest of college football, you know, has their own championship on the side. It's almost like uh, having not one double A. Uh, but having a 1A1, who knows, having a separate division within 1A uh, where these teams compete against each other and then maybe their champion plays against the mega conference champion at the end of the year. Yeah, Sam Khan, uh, who covers uh, the state of Texas for The Athletic, he and I hosted, along with Audrey Snyder, our Penn State writer, um, you know, a live chat room uh, last Friday when all the news came down that the Pac-12 was breaking up, that Oregon and Washington were going to be joining USC and UCLA in the Big Ten and that Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado and Utah were going to the Big 12, essentially leaving Stanford, Clemson, 
uh, Oregon State and Washington State as sort of the last four teams standing. And, you know, again, there's a lot of layers to this story. I think, number one, um, you know, there's a lot of fear from Miami fans saying, hey, we're going to get left out. You know, are we going to be able to get into the Big Ten? A um, couple of things to keep in mind here, just just from a conversational standpoint. Uh, number one, my, the ACC is tied together by its grant of rights, which is through 2036. Um, what I've gathered from conversations that I had at ACC Media Days and with people at Florida State is um, that if Florida State really is going to push to get out of the league, they still have a lot of litigation to go through, Carlos. They still have a lot that they have to figure out. So I, I was basically told by somebody last week at Florida State that even though their president and um, their athletic director and members of their board of trustees have come out and said we're looking to leave, the anticipation is they will not be filing to leave before August 15th as far as this next coming season is concerned, meaning the earliest Florida State will be leaving uh, the ACC most likely will be after the 2025 season, right? They've got to play the 23rd. They're going to play the 24th. So the earliest at this point would be going into 2025. Um, and that's with them being fully confident that they can get out of the grant of rights, uh, which, you know, that you know, ESPN reported it's 120 million dollars just to get out of the ACC as far as a buyout. Um, you know that doesn't include the grant of rights and whatever sort of uh, legal fees and legal battles and getting sued by the ACC as well as other schools. Wh wh what that's going to lead to. Um, I know that there's been conversations that uh, seven uh, ACC schools um, are interested in leaving and getting out of the grant of rights. Uh, again, though. What I what I would caution everybody listening to all this and 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 to other reports is, uh, you have to have somebody to dance with if you're going to leave for somebody else, right? So, is the Big Ten, which which is already at 18 teams, and the SEC, which is at 16 teams, are they going to just accept anybody who comes out of the ACC? Um, what I've gathered through conversations with people uh, at different universities is that. Uh, the Big Ten is ultimately waiting on a few key ACC teams that they really want. I think uh, Florida State is one of them, even though they're not an AAU school. I know AAU status is big. For those of you uh, wondering what the hell I'm talking about when I say AAU status, it's basically high academic standards, a, a major mm -hmm. research university. So, um, But Florida State is confident that they can get there within a year, um, You know, especially if they're not leaving the ACC until 2025 at the earliest. So I think, you know, those things are sort of in motion being discussed. Um, I think Clemson uh, is really the linchpin here for the ACC. Uh, I don't know, you know, that Clemson, uh, they're certainly not being as vocal as Florida State is to this point, but they are having board of trustees meetings. They are discussing things. So it's a very tenuous situation, Carlos. Um, but I want Miami fans to understand that um, litigation is serious. You were, yeah. <laughs> you were a lawyer. Um, these kind of things are not done overnight. I know the Pac-12 broke apart pretty quickly, but the Pac-12 didn't have a TV deal um, in place right. beyond what they were offered from Apple, which was a streaming service deal. So this is different. Um, the ACC schools are locked in with ESPN, and ESPN is one of the two major players as far as TV money, and Disney and ESPN are going through financial issues. They've had a bunch of layoffs. Yeah. So I, I guess to spin this conversation forward and to kind of educate some of our listeners here, which is what I just spent the last three or four minutes doing, I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with this um, to think about as, as we progress through this conversation. Um, do you think Miami has to leave within the next year or two to survive or could being a team that 
essentially makes over 40 million a year and is the third highest league is still a good position for this for this program to be in. Well, first of all, you know, going back to the breakup of the Pac-12, that to me is the the worst breakup on the West Coast since the ending of 90210. And that's uh <laughs> that's saying something because I really love that show. Yeah. Anyway, so you know, I think at the end of the day the ACC has to find a way to respond to all this, right? They've got two years to figure things out. So the Pac-12 is breaking up. The Big 12 is also in a little bit of the turmoil. What I would do is I try and expand the ACC and try and make it more attractive uh, in terms of uh, getting additional TV deals or additional revenue from other streaming services and ways to be able to you know market your league and prepare it for the eventual leaving of Florida State, Clemson, or even Miami. If you could build your brand again, if you could add additional teams – and maybe the additional revenue you're able to generate through those additional sources, even though it's not SEC or Big Ten level, can improve these additional teams that you have in there and have five or six teams that are at least very competitive on a national level. That helps while still maintaining your brand as an academic uh, conference because that's your niche, right? You're going to have yeah. kids interested in being part of an academic conference, academic universities, because at the end of the day, not everybody makes it to the NFL. Not everybody's going to get NIL deals. You're going to want to go to a place that could springboard you into a better future. And I think maybe that's where the ACC's niche is. Now, do I think Miami needs the 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 SEC revenue? I mean, I don't think they necessarily need all of that money to get to that level, but if they can come close if they can get somewhere within that $10 million mark away from what the SEC or the Big Ten are paying their their teams within the conference, I think it helps. I think they may be able to generate additional revenue from other sources if they're able to raise their national profile. Because at the end of the day, as we've all seen, when Miami is big, when Miami's at the top of college football, when they're winning, eyes are on Miami. And that brings dollars. Eyes bring dollars, ultimately. It's not necessarily just conferences. Yes, that helps because the SEC has – a ton of great teams and a ton of great matchups on a week-in, week-out basis. But as long as you're drawing fans and as long as you're drawing eyeballs, you're drawing dollars. Now, where those dollars come from, you have to get creative maybe and, and find different ways to generate that revenue. But the, the first step is getting to being a winning program again, getting to the top of college football, and then you can negotiate from a position of strength, not a position of, please take us, we need your money. Yeah. Um, a couple of things to touch on uh, just so that uh, our listeners understand. And, and, and you may have heard this in other places, but Florida State, essentially uh, their board of trustees and, and you know people like Drew Weatherford, who played for the program, who's now a member of their board of trustees, have talked about we can't afford to fall this far behind. Right. We can't afford to fall um, 30 million dollars behind. I've done a little bit of research. Um, the projected difference for 2023 in terms of earnings between the Big Ten, SEC, Big 12, and ACC. These are the, some projected numbers that, that were researched. Um, it's it's going to be $59 million for the Big Ten in 23, $56 million for the SEC. Um, and this is per school in terms of TV dollars, okay, what each school is going to get. Um, $42 million for the Big 12 and $36 million for the ACC. Uh, so right now, if you look at the ACC and, and the Big Ten and the SEC, the gap is about $20 million dollars. Um, in 2024, the Big Ten will go up to 73. The SEC will be around 58. Uh, the Big 12 will be 43. And the ACC is probably closer to 38 uh, million. So right there, uh, about th you know, $35 million between them and the Big Ten um, and, and you know, 20 uh, between the SEC uh, and, and the ACC. 
So then the NCC has to get creative. I think one of those ideas that they floated of a tiered system of payouts based on where teams finish and who's doing what, I think is the best way to go. You incentivize teams to invest in their programs, to be better, to recruit better, to get better, to earn additional dollars. So the top end of the of the conference gets more money than those that really aren't doing enough to build their programs and be winning programs. I, I will say this, Carlos, and I did more research again. I'm, I'm simply trying to educate you guys so you have the information. Florida State and Clemson both came out. Um, well, there was a graphic shared where they each said that they they averaged over three million viewers. Miami, I think, was next on the list with two point one million viewers per game. Um, you know, third in the ACC overall. If you go back and you look at just two thousand twenty two, uh, Florida State has three of the four most watched games. Um, Miami's highest rated game, and I'm looking for right now. Probably uh, uh, was Texas A&M, which ranked 14th among all games involving ACC teams. Of course, that was 3.4 million viewers, and that was before Miami uh, season fell apart. Um, so, yes, when they're playing in big games, I think people tune in and watch. But the more telling statistic, Carlos, and, I, and, I, and again, I'm simply trying to educate uh, – you know, fans who say, oh, Miami always draws fans. FSU always draws fans. Of course, they're yes, when they're winning, they draw fans. Right. But I think the more telling stat is, well, if you look at just league games, meaning ACC versus ACC teams, no SEC teams being involved, uh, Clemson, okay, I'm going to read them off to you. These are league games, the most watched games. Clemson, NC State last year, 4.98 million. Clemson, Georgia Tech, 4.86 million. Clemson, Syracuse, 4.75 million. Um, NC State, North Carolina, 3.61 million. Clemson, North Carolina, 3.47 million. Clemson, FSU, 3.38 million. Clemson, Wake Forest, 3.18 million. What is what's the common denominator there, Carlos? Well, it's the best program in the conference, right? And they've been right. contending for a national title for a while now. And I think there's there's that same sort of attraction to Clemson than there was to Miami when Miami was at the top of the, of, of the mm -hmm. college football world, which is either you love them or you hate them. You can't stand their coach or you love their coach. There is no in-between when it comes to Clemson. So there's eyeballs tuning in to watch them win or to watch them lose. Right. And that's where right. Miami needs to get to. It needs to get to be that programmer again that people love to hate or love to watch. Right. Either way, your eyeballs are going to be on the program because you want to see them fail or you want to see them succeed. And I think if they start winning, they still have that sort of swagger and that personality. They could, you know, Mario could easily be another uh, <laughs> sort of um, double Sweeney in terms of splitting the, the world in two in terms of liking him or hating him. Uh, there'll be many opportunities for that because of the way he is and his personality, how big it is and how strong he is and forceful he is with people when he does interviews and things of that nature. So people either see him as, you know, a used car salesman, a guy they can't stand, a guy that's a little too um, trying to act tough or another guy or a guy that really love, love his personality, love the way he treats his kids and the way he recruits. Um, but at the end of the day, if he doesn't win and if this program doesn't win, nobody cares. The eyeballs aren't going to be on the team. Yeah. And and here's something that needs that, that needs to be said. The Miami Florida state game, what, you know, I just read off a bunch of games. Where do you think the Miami-Florida State game ranks among games last season involving an ACC team on, on the list? I'll, I'll give you viewers here, probably like 2.9 million. Half of that. 1.5 wow. million. It ranked 32nd among games involving SEC, uh, ACC teams last season. Um, if, if you do it just among league games... Uh, I'll do the I'll do a quick count here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Twelfth uh among ace just ACC games in terms of people tuning in 
to watch it. So again, Miami fans, you know, we love to beat our chests, right? We're the, we're, we're the U we've got five national championships, blah, blah, blah. The reason I'm sharing this is I want you to understand when Miami goes to the negotiating table, right? With ESPN and Fox and everybody else. And they say, well, look, we're everybody tunes in to watch us. Well, do they, Carlos? Right now they don't. Right. Uh, and, and yes, you can sell potential. Hey, Mario's getting this thing right. They're going to be much better soon. But I think Miami fans have to live in, re in reality. The program has sucked for 20 years. It has sucked. It has been very average. Nothing compared to what it was when it was a champion. And nationally, people have lost interest in Miami. They've had one good season in 20 years. And the, the reality is... You may think you're Miami and, 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 and are the five-time champs and all that other stuff, but this is what, you know, it's like going to the arbitration table, right, Carlos? When you're arbitrating, you bring out the facts, and these are the numbers Miami's going to the negotiating table with. So I want you to know this as listeners and readers and people who follow my work and, and listen to me and listen to the show here on this podcast. Miami's not as, in, 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 in as powerful a position as you might think. Right. And the other thing is they want the idea is they want to bring viewers because viewers bring ad revenue. Right. Right. And if you're not generating viewers, you're not generating enough dollars and ad revenue for them to be able to make you an offer. They feel comfortable with that. You're going to return on that investment. And that's the bottom line. And you could you know, it's it's Miami's a great program and it's got a historic uh, lineage for, for like you said, because of the five national championships, because of the, the bad boy image of the 80s and early 90s and having the greatest football team in college football history in 2001. But all of that's worn off. It's been 22 years since 01, right? It's coming up on almost 25 years of that. And, and there hasn't been that mystique around the program for a very long time. People have been born, graduated college, gotten a master's degree uh, ever since that happened. And nothing like that has ever happened again in their lifetime. They've missed out on that. And that's the problem. And those aren't the people that are generating ad revenue dollars. Now, the, the ones that 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 are that have stuck with the program, that still believe in the program, the ones that that follow the program closely, there's not enough of them around to be able to generate the ad revenue or the dollars necessary to be able to give Miami a huge offer to to switch conferences or a big TV deal. It all starts with winning. Unless this program starts winning again at the level they used to win at, where they're consistently top five in the nation and competing for a national championship year in and year out, those dollars aren't going to be there. Yeah. And so that's why I think, you know, Miami fans that are anti saying, hey, the Big Ten just has to add us uh, realize for a minute that um, them and the SEC really have no motivation to do so. Um, they could if they're competing against each other and, and they're and they're and the ACC folds. But we haven't gotten to that point yet. Or or the other option is, does Miami try and rescue the ACC by being its flagship program like it did with the Big East? Does it allow Clemson and Florida State to leave and then it adds other teams in right. and lets themselves be, you know, the the big brand within the ACC? The ACC then pulls out its revenue or, or allocates its revenue based on performance. And if Miami's a top dog in the conference or is getting a bigger share of the pie and it's almost comparable to what they would have received in a larger conference and they are the dominant team, the flagship team for the ACC. Yeah, um, I, I think that's another excellent point as well. And, and, and again, um, we will see what happens. I don't think anything is going to happen uh, before August 15th. I think this is going to play out over the year. We will hear reports from different places where FSU is, how the grant of rights stands, and, and what happens next. But I don't anticipate this, Carlos, uh, becoming something where you and I are doing another podcast in five days saying, man, I can't believe Miami's going to the SEC and FSU and uh, Clemson are going to the Big Ten. I, yeah, and I, I, I think the other wild card here, too, is Notre Dame, right? What happens with Notre Dame? 
if the right. ACC could somehow say, listen, we're going to let Florida State and Clemson go, and we want you and Miami to be our flagship programs, and we're going to pay you a larger rev- uh, share of the pie uh, based on performance or even based on a, con- a contractual deal. You guys get more money because you are the flagship programs, yeah. and we want you to be here to to establish um, a, a stronger conference and to be the run- have the run of the ACC. Maybe that's attractive to to uh, Notre Dame. It would have to be a huge sweetheart deal in their favor because obviously they hold all the cards. They're cool being independent. And they've got overtures, obviously, from the Big Ten. That's going to pay them a ton of money to come over. But who knows? If Notre Dame is able to, or if the AC is able to snag Notre Dame on a full-time basis and just have Miami and Notre Dame as their flagship football programs, maybe that works out. We will see. It'll be interesting. Uh, I also think, um, you know, we, we need to relax a little bit as a fan base and, and realize that, like again, there's a lot of litigation to go um, and a lot of conversations to be had. It's interesting to follow. But I can't wait to be just talking about football, Carlos, because this kind oh, yeah, of stuff is, uh, is nutty. Uh, we have one, more, a... one more quick point. One yeah. more quick point. I think the other thing that needs to happen is the allocation of the money given to the program, specifically, let's say with Miami, whatever they receive, they need to allocate smartly, right? They need to use it intelligently and, and, and feed whatever gives them the biggest return on investment for recruiting, for talent acquisition, for landing players. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. You can get $50 million, right, from your conference, but if you're blowing it on stupid stuff and stuff that really doesn't make a difference in terms of your landing players, then it doesn't matter. What you need to do is allocate those dollars in a more intelligent way and be better in terms of budgeting and allocating those 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 figures. Absolutely. One thing I will say for Notre Dame, and I, I just did a show uh, for the Athletics podcast until Saturday uh, with our Notre Dame beat writer, Pete Sampson, uh, Pete and I discussed this a little bit. He said, you know, Notre Dame's about to renew their deal with NBC and make a lot more money. And of course, they've got a, they've got a lot of uh, bank there at Notre Dame. So I don't think money, they are the one team in my mind that can remain independent throughout this. Mm-hmm. Now, the only way they wouldn't in my mind, Carlos, is if the Big Ten or the SEC just decide, well, guess what? We're no longer playing games against schools outside our conference, which would exactly. then lock Notre Dame out. So I yep. think until we get to that point, Notre Dame is going to be just fine uh, staying as an independent. They have no need to join the ACC. And as, and as long as they have this deal with the ACC where they're playing five or six ACC games a year, that helps them fill out their schedule with quality opponents or power, you know, power five or power four opponents now that we have to call it that. Um, so It'll be interesting to watch uh, what Notre Dame does down the road, but I, I personally don't think they're going to be joining a conference anytime soon. I don't think they're going to come and save the day for anyone because they don't need to. Um, all right, let's get into Miami a little bit. Uh, I was in Charlotte. I got a chance to talk to a lot of head coaches, uh, players, people uh, for the ACC Media Day. Uh, I sat down with Mario, Tyler Van Dyke, Cam Kitchens, um, you know, and and – had long conversations uh, about the team. Uh, I got a peek at Mario's uh, depth chart and uh, talked to, um, you know, the offensive and uh, defensive coordinators, uh, Lance Gidry, um, and and just got a better idea. Um, Shannon Dawson being the other, I forgot his name for a half second there, uh, just about what they're looking for entering camp. And, and, and look, we kind of touched on this earlier. There's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, people making a big deal of whatever happens in practice. The only thing you got to worry about when it comes to Miami and its depth. I put out two stories, by the way, breaking down Miami's, um, you know, depth chart and potential rotation. Um, The only thing you got to worry about is injuries. And Tyler Harrell is a guy at the wide receiver position who I know Miami wants to use his speed on the outside to help stretch defenses. I think he will be a starter 
um, along, um, you know, with Colby Young and Xavier Restrepo. He will help stretch defenses. But the problem is he's got a foot injury. And I've talked we've talked about this before. He had that uh, when he was at Alabama. He injured his foot in, in, in Louisville. He's had limited snaps. So he's fast. He's a blur. But if he's unhealthy, he's not going to help you. And I, and I know that it was reported he kind of limped off the field the other day in practice. All I know is if you don't see him at Canes Fest on Saturday, which is the first sort of open practice to the public, um, then worry. But if he's out there and he's moving around and he's in uniform, even if he's not starting, uh, just know that it's a good sign. So for all the fans who constantly panic about every little thing they hear in practice, uh, as long as he's present and not in a boot, I'm okay. I'm okay with whatever's going on with Tyler Harrell because he is going to be an important part of this team. A couple of other positions I wanted to talk to, and then you and I can dissect this, Carlos, a little more. Uh, Branson Dean, uh, I think he's going to be the starter defensive tackle next to Leonard Taylor. Uh, he was made part of Miami's leadership council. There's 13 players on Miami's leadership council this year. Um, you know, it, it's it's been bumped up from from six guys to 13. That's an important development um, in, in its own right, Carlos, because we're always looking for alphas, right? Well, to get voted into leadership council, you need 75% of the vote from your teammates. Last year, only six guys got that. This year, 13 guys. Branson Dean is one of them. So I think that is noteworthy. Um you know, we were kind of discussing what's going to happen at D-Tackle. Lance Gidry told me uh, on media day that, you know, he was he was asked, uh, don't you miss a guy like Daryl Jackson, right? A big 6'6", 300-pound guy. He says, look, we'd love to have a big sucker. Uh, but the reality is we can make things work with guys that are fast and, and a little bit smaller. And, you know, you can you can run sort of different defensive schemes. So they're, I don't think they're as worried about defensive tackles. Maybe I am. Um the other interesting tidbit is the offensive line. We mentioned Lawrence Seymour, who was who was a part-time starter last year, kind of undersi- undersized leaving. Um, I, I had a conversation with Alex Mirabal, the offensive line coach, for a while, and he said, "Look, we, we don't we don't worry about you know positional sort of lineups affecting us, right? We want to put the five best on the field. I think it's pretty well set that the best five are the guys you saw you saw most of the spring." Right. It's from left to right. It's Jalen Rivers. Um, it's Javian Cohen at left guard. It's Matt Lee at center. It's Inez Cooper at right guard. And it's Francis Maui Goa at right tackle. I asked Mirabal, I said, well, then who's number six? He said, Samson Okunlola. That's how high regard they have Samson Okunlola. Um, I asked him who's seven. Uh, he said, most likely Logan Sagapolo. I think Logan Sagapolo is essentially the backup center. I know he's really small but he's the strongest offensive lineman they have. Um, and then the eighth guy was McCoy, uh, Matthew McCoy, the, the freshman tackle, who they the second-year freshman tackle that they really like a lot. And is this due to injury to, be, due to, injury, to the injury to Jalen Rivers? Is he not uh, No, Jalen Rivers is out there. You're thinking about Zion Nelson, um, who still right. isn't back. Zion Nelson, um, Mario told me in Charlotte that he would be back in the middle of camp. Uh, Zion, you know, is didn't have surgery on his knee. He didn't have a second surgery. He just sort of let it heal naturally over time. And I asked Mirabal about Nelson. I said, what's the deal with him? And he said, look, he's got to come back and earn it. Like until he proves it, he goes, J- I have no problem starting Jalen Rivers at left tackle. He thinks Jalen Rivers, Rivers is the best left tackle on the team right now uh, wow. until Samson Okunlola gets better. So um, that's those are the nuggets, the important nuggets I gathered from um, my conversations that I can remember off the top of my head. 
what say you what's on your mind what give me some questions uh regarding campus maybe some of the intel i got stuff that, that yeah you're i mean about. The, the stuff with the defensive tackles is interesting because it's exactly what we've talked about before right before we even got to this point where we saw that they weren't getting a large or a, a couple large guys to play defensive tackle opposite leonard taylor where mm -hmm. they're going to have to use that that small size and speed to their advantage and use defensive schemes to do that where you'll see they're going to be using a lot of stunts they're going to be using a lot of slanting. They're going to be using a lot of movement along the front of the defensive line to be able to gain advantage and leverage in gaps as opposed to strength, brute strength, where they're just clogging up gaps or double gapping with their two defensive tackles and then making plays. Um, because at the end of the day, what the defensive tackle's job is, is not only to penetrate and, and occupy gaps, but it's also to occupy blockers to allow linebackers to make plays, to run to the football freely so they're not getting uh, attacked at the second level by a guard or a tackle. Um, on a pull or, or wraparound or whatever the case may be. So you either do that through sheer size, just occupying gaps and not allowing the offensive lineman to come off to that second level or through slants and stunts and speed where you're you're just blowing past them and getting to the football. So now they have to change their scheme up and account for you in terms of that 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 blocking scheme. Um, I want to see how that plays out. It, it, it could It's going to work mostly in the conference because there's not a lot of dominant offensive lines. Uh, but when you get up against teams like a Clemson or a Florida State or people that have large offensive linemen up front like to bully you, if you play an out-of-conference opponent like a Texas A&M who's got a large offensive line, or if you make a bowl game or maybe even the playoff and you're playing against an SEC team or a Big Ten team with a dominant offensive line, that could be an issue. Uh, yeah. Because those teams not only have large offensive linemen, but they're usually athletic as well. So they can handle pretty much anything and everything you throw at. Um, and they're also very sound in their schemes, which is the other thing that, that offensive lines need to be when they're handling uh, teams that are quicker up front and that's, that, slunt, that slant, stunt, and move a lot uh, and stem. Uh, as far as, you know, the the concerns going into the season, I, I think like you talked about earlier, injuries are a concern. And for me, the biggest area of concern is not right now wide receiver. I think they bolstered that enough with the offseason additions. Uh, it seems like Colby George is coming along. You know, Colby Young is, it looks like he's coming along again, going to have a better season than last year. Um, you know, I haven't heard much about Frank Ladson. I don't know what's going on with him. Xavier Restrepo is still looking good. I think the slot guys are looking good. The new additions, the uh, the freshmen that have come in, uh, yeah, look Daniel good as Ray well. Ray Joseph, yeah. I Ray think, Ray's looking I think, good. I think Ray Ray's going to be huge by the end. Of the, he might be their best receiver by the end of the year. Yeah. Just my yeah. opinion. Him, Brashard Smith, you know, Xavier Restrepo. You've got a lot of good guys there in the slot. Uh, and I think it's Robbie Washington that's playing outside. It, mm -hmm. it should be in a, a help help there as well. And I think uh, Isaiah Horton's coming along as well and may show some flashes here this season. So there's a lot of guys in the receiver room now that you can maybe turn to and see what happens there. But you um, don't know until the bullets start flying. And exactly. We've said that for years. Games. Yeah. We've said that for years. And yeah. um, there's a lot of potential, but we just don't know yet. To me, the concern is safety. I think if you have an injury at the safety position, there's there's a problem. Uh, because I think aside from your two frontline guys, you don't know what you have behind them. And yeah. you're relying on guys that are inexperienced, guys that haven't done it before, and guys that don't have the size of the, the two front runners, right? The two guys that start. Uh, obviously, nobody has the size of James Williams, but I mean, even even behind uh, Cam Kitchens, there's not a guy that's that's solid, that's stocky, that you know can come up and make plays in the run game or make tackles in the open field if you need them to with some, with some thump. Um, so we'll see what happens there. On the offensive line, you know, it's, well, it's interesting – can right. I intervene before? And you, and you can give me your offensive line thoughts right after this. But I just wanted to say this since we're on safety. Um, you know, I asked about that uh, both with uh, – I didn't end up talking to a dive, but I, I did talk to Gidry about this. He did put out the carrot that James Williams could play in the box um, at outside linebacker when they kind of go 3-4 scheme 
um, and leave, basically leaving Cam Kitchens as, as the free safety with, with a bunch of corners. Um, but I, I will say one guy who is really intriguing to the staff, who I think is going to be super valuable, um, is uh, Jadaius uh, Richard, uh, the transfer from Vanderbilt, because he's so tall, so um, lengthy, 6'2", 197. He played mostly safety for Vanderbilt last season, even though Miami brought him in as a cornerback, even though he's getting a lot of work at cornerback. I think ultimately we, if Markeith Williams and Brian Balaam, um, you know, are two guys that just can't figure it out, they can't play quarterback back there because they're just not as fast. I think they're confident that Jadeus mm-hmm. Richard could um, and has the experience to do it because he did it in the SEC. So I'm not saying that solves the problem, Carlos, or or should should calm your worries, but it certainly was an interesting little wrinkle, something that I wasn't expecting to hear. Jaden Harris is another guy who came in last year uh, from Georgia, recruit. He only played 18 snaps, but he's another guy getting snaps at safety as well. So I agree. It's a concern, but I wanted to throw that tidbit in there. Yeah. My concern with Jaden Harris, I think he's a little light in the ass. No, he's like in the 170s or something like that. He's so 180, he's... six foot 180. Yeah, he's okay, a, so he's he's a Cam bit... Kitchens type. Yeah. Right. Okay. So to me, I think you could you can mask some of that stuff, like you said, with different coverages and different schemes where you're having, you know, if you're going zone, you could rotate a corner back there to play a deep half, deep quarter, deep third, uh, and bring James Williams down into the box to be a force player as opposed to playing deep, uh, deep third, deep half, deep quarter, whatever the case may be. But at the end of the day, if you have an injury, then you got to take a corner that you're probably relying on in that spot, weaken that area, and then slide him over to a safety spot, which is not his full-time role. So that's the concern. But we'll see what happens. Hopefully everybody stays healthy and there's no injuries in that back half, but you never know. You know, James Williams has been has already missed a few games his first two seasons. Um, hopefully his, his, uh, his shoulders hold up this season and uh, we see him play a full 12. As far as the offensive line is concerned, I think it's going to be a better group this year. My concern, obviously, Jalen Rivers, a left tackle, is is unproven there. It's it's him kicking out from the inside to the outside. Yeah. You know, based on what I saw in the spring, I don't know that he has the feet to play left tackle. Maybe he's improved over the summer. You know, he's gotten his body leaner. He's he's gotten his athleticism up. He's worked with Mirabal. Mirabal sees it in him. Uh, and if Mirabal is saying he's the best left tackle on the team, then hopefully that's true. And that's hopefully what we see. Um, hopefully that doesn't mean that the rest of the candidates to play left tackle just suck. <laughs> hopefully it means that he's really proven himself as a left tackle. And I think overall, the biggest addition on that offensive line is Matt Lee at center. I think you're, you need a guy who's experienced at center, a guy that knows what calls to make and that can handle, um, you know, double teaming people or to handle taking on a, a bull rush from a, a large defensive tackle, one technique, a guy that can be a leader and can be a force up front. Uh, because for too many years, we've seen guys that, you know, and Corey Gaynor and, and, and um, gosh, now his name escapes me. Uh, the guy that just transferred out. Kelvin oh, Campbell. No, not John Campbell. Um, gosh, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. 53. Jesus. Not Oh, I, I can. I mean, look at here. The, the um, poor man's Kelvin Harris, <laughs> who played inside. Lawrence Seymour, you're talking about? No, who played center? Um, you're not talking about DJ Scaife, right? Who graduated? No, right? no, no. Last season, center. He started off at guard as a freshman, then he moved to center last year. Oh yeah, Jakai Clark. Jakai Clark. There we go. Yeah, Jesus. SMU. Yeah. Guys, listen. It's too many names. It's too many people. Too many years. <laughs> and uh, as we're getting up in age. I don't drink ginkgo biloba. I don't take any uh, any sort of nootropics to help with me with my mind, although I should. <laughs> we probably both should. The only nootropic I take is bourbon, and that's not helping any. So 
Um, yeah, it, it's it's a big difference because Ja'Kai Clark and Corey Gaynor, although maybe they were good in terms of the line calls and knowing what to do up front, they just weren't dominant uh, as run blockers as centers, and that that hurt them up front. And yeah. you're going to need that. And I think Matt Lee brings a lot of that along with his experience. So I think I'm very confident the offensive line is going to be better. I'm confident the receiver group is going to be better. My main concern, like I said, is that depth at safety. Yeah, uh, and and we'll find out. Uh, I, I'm not going to be here uh, this weekend. I'm going up to IMG Academy on Friday for their media day event, and then Saturday I've got a a baptism for uh, my godson. I'm going to be the godfather uh, for for my nephew, and and so I, I'm not going to be in town. I got to do this stuff before the season starts. So, so are are you going to make anybody an offer they can't refuse? I will. I will make them an offer. Go and watch the. Uh... <laughs> the uh, Canes Fest event, watch a little bit of practice at Hard Rock and let me know how it goes. Um, I don't know that we're going to be revealed much. Mario's uh, very uh, conscious of people stealing things. Uh, so uh, I- I'm sure it'll be very, very vanilla uh, practice for the Hurricanes at Hard Rock Stadium on Saturday. Um, all right, let's 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 move on. I have a mailbag that we're going to get to, but before we get there, I wanted to just kind of touch on a little bit on recruiting because I was at these high school media day events, Carlos, and I talked to, I just put out a story today on um, some of the coaches that some of the high school coaches, and I will say this, um, you know, as far as South Florida recruiting is concerned, these are all Dade and Broward County coaches. Um, It's a story you can find in the athletic. Um, For the most part, a lot of them are happy with Mario. They say he's doing a better job recruiting than Manny Diaz did that uh, Alex Mirabal shows up on campus, uh, you know, even at the schools that don't have recruits um, to kind of investigate and to put the time in. And, and, but I will say this, Florida state is just as good at it. And and so people are wondering, man, how does Florida state have the number four recruiting class in the country? I think for a long time we said, well, they're because of the transfer portal, right? They're getting all these studs out of the transfer portal. They're doing a really good job developing. Um, Everything I've gathered over the last three weeks, and this is probably poison to Miami fans' ears, is they're also very good at recruiting and evaluating and putting time in. And I can tell you that here in Dade County, they've put a lot of time in to these coaches between Randy Shannon, of course, who was Miami's coach and is their linebackers coach now, Odell Haggins, who's been there forever, the defensive line coach, and Mike Norvell, who apparently, according to Miami Central's coach, Jube Joseph, will walk in there without any bodyguards. He goes there by himself like he's going to Starbucks, is the phrase that I got from Jube Joseph, that he's that confident going into an inner city school in Miami and fitting in just fine. So I think the moral of the story here is Miami better start winning because Florida State has it rolling on the recruiting trail and in the transfer portal. And we know how it works in this state, Carlos. Uh, When Florida was at their peak, right, with Urban Meyer, really hard to catch. When Florida State was at its peak with Bobby Bowden for a little while with Jimbo Fisher, they're really hard to catch. My point here is Miami cannot afford to have a crappy season. They need to stack good recruiting classes upon one another because now Florida State is not a joke anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And I think more than ever, especially with conference realignment coming about, like we talked about, and the need to get into the playoff and the need to increase revenue for the program to stay competitive, winning is what cures all. At the end of the day, they may not be top, five, but they've got to be top 10 in recruiting year in and year out and then develop those guys that they get. Um, at the end of the day, the rankings are great, 
And, you know, obviously the more, the higher you are in those rankings and the more top five players and the more five star players and four star players you land, the better your roster is going to be overall. But you still have to have guys that, that hit, right? That hit rate has to be high. So the guys that you recruit need to be able to perform once they get there to the university. I think where that's where Miami needs to be able to shine right now is they need to show recruits. Yeah. Listen, maybe we're not. Uh, ranked fourth, maybe we're not ranked fifth in the recruiting classes this past year, uh, but maybe, but but look at our what we're doing with our players. Look at how we're developing guys. We're getting guys into the NFL. We're making guys better players. Look at how we're developing their bodies. Look at how we're developing their minds. Look at the education that we have here. So packaging that together is going to help them land recruits at the end of the day. But it all starts with wins and losses on the field because if they don't start winning, they're not going to win recruiting battles. No. And and they're doing okay right now considering they're coming off a of five and seven season. They've got. No, they're doing great considering that. Yeah, I mean, this was an absolute crap first season for Mario, and and they they're they're not completely they're not getting completely embarrassed uh, on the trail. They have a respectable class, but if you're going to win these important recruiting battles and continue to stack talent upon talent, you cannot afford to have a bad season. You cannot afford to lose games you're not supposed to lose. And so, I'm still not convinced Miami is there. They're going to have to prove me uh, otherwise. I think they are at best an eight to nine win team this season with everything going their way. Uh, but we will see. Uh, I, look, I'm going to go over some high schools locally. I want I wanted to share these names because I spent hours talking to coaches, getting a feel. These are 25 class of 2025 and 2026 guys that I just want you guys to know, because I, I don't just sit there and rip everything off of the 247 and the rivals and the on three. Yes, they do phenomenal work, but I have real relationships with these coaches and, and, and I understand you know, South Florida's recruiting backyard. And I, hell, I put the work in. I might as well share what I got. So here are some kids. I'm just going to go down a list school by school here from Media Day. Some of the kids that I want you to be aware of that Miami is pursuing. Uh, Miami Northwestern, which has obviously produced a lot of talented players, including Kalijah Cansey, who just was a first round pick, defensive player of the year in the ACC, or, or certainly capable of it, uh, top defensive player in the ACC. Uh, they have a receiver in the 2026 class, Calvin Russell, who's 6'5", 170 pounds. Florida State, Miami, and Penn State have already offered him. Obviously not written offers because he's 2026. You can't do it till you're a junior. Uh, so, uh, but, but he is on the radar for Miami. At Columbus High School, there is a linebacker by the name of Hector Chavez, who's 5'10", 210 pounds. I know you're probably rolling your eyes saying, why – would Miami go after a 5'10 linebacker? And in fact, Lance Gidry told me all of the linebackers that they're going to sign moving forward have to be 6'2 or taller. Okay, he wants size. But Hector Chavez is this good. He had 20 tackles in the state championship victory for Columbus. He's 5'10, 210 pounds. Miami, Pittsburgh, Syracuse have already offered him. That's a name to know at linebacker in terms of locals here in South Florida. At Barbara Goldman, I know you're probably like figuring out, hey, I'm I'm close to Barbara Goldman, right? That's where you guys live, Carlos. You're not too far yeah, away. That's where my that's my wife graduated from there. Right. Daryl Bell. Okay. He's a class of 2026 safety, six foot, 180 pounds. He was a max preps all American. Um, he has a Florida State offer. Randy Shannon and company are all over this kid. I'm hoping Miami makes their way to Goldman and jump on this kid soon because I've seen him. And he's a super smart 15-year-old, super athletic. It's one of those kids that you just don't want Florida State to beat you to. Um, North Miami, uh, they had a couple of guys that are in the 2025 class, none that have a Miami offer yet. Miami Central, of course, um, you know, Miami has a current commitment from Vincent Shavers, the 2024 linebacker. 
but there are some special kids in the 25 class. All of you have already heard of Armando Blunt, who's, the, I think, a five-star number five overall in the 247 composite for 2025. But there is another defensive lineman that is right there with him who's also 2025. I saw him this weekend. He's huge, 6'4", 270, Randy Adarica. Uh, he's got a Florida State and a Miami offer. So not only are the Hurricanes going after Armando Blunt, they really want Randy Adarica as well. That's a name to sort of follow. Uh, Ezekiel Marcelin, another linebacker built just like Wesley Besaint, also goes to Miami Central. Uh, Amari Wallace, 5'11", 170. Safety, another Cam Kitchens type. Those are all names to know as far as uh, Miami Central is concerned. Um I'm going to work my way down this list here, Carlos. Uh, Miami Palmetto High School, which, of course, produced Leonard Taylor. Uh, they've got a kid right now, a 6'2", 305-pound uh, junior, going into his junior year, Davion Dixon, who's committed to Notre Dame. Uh, this kid, I think, is going to end up with the Irish. He'll be a name you'll hear a lot about. His father took him to Notre Dame's camp. He got an offer there. Uh, they really, uh, I think Miami uh, kind of just, I don't want to say they've punted on this kid, but I think there's other targets that are probably uh, bigger priorities for the Hurricanes. Um, Booker T. Washington, the two names to know from Booker T. Washington, which, of course, Ice Harris, uh, the Ice Harris senior who, who worked at Miami previously with Randy Shannon. Um, he is back at Booker T. coaching that high school program. His son, Tim Harris Jr., who's on Miami staff, is the running back uh, coach. He has gone to go and recruit these two kids, Ben Hanks Jr., a 6'2", 170-pound cornerback who's elite, uh, and Antonio Branch, a 6'3", 175-pound safety. Both of those kids, I think, uh, are very much Miami targets, but I will say Alabama, Florida State are all over them as well. Uh, I think the Gators, obviously, will be, will be coming in just for those two kids. Uh, so that'll be an interesting battle to watch. Yeah, and ben, uh, ben Hanks Jr.'s dad played at Florida, so right, there's a exactly. connection there. Exactly. One interesting name, uh, Doral Academy doesn't produce a ton of guys, but uh, Dylan Steen, who is 6'3", 255 pounds, he's a 2026 20, uh, offensive lineman. Um, his older brother, Tyler Steen, started at Alabama, was a third-round pick of the Eagles in this past draft. He is there. So, we may say, oh, why, why even bother driving by Doral Academy? They never put guys. Well, Ty, uh, Dylan Steen right now is a guy to watch. He's a big offensive lineman. You know how much Mario loves offensive linemen. So, um, over Not only that, but listen, yeah. you know how these kids are nowadays. Mm -hmm. They may start at one high school. They'll end up at another. So right. you want to catch them when they're at the school that they're not before they're really well known and they make that jump to a better school, like a central to a Northwestern or other programs that are more high profile. So they can compete for a, a state championship, like a Columbus, even American heritage. So if you catch them when they're down, when they're, when they're still just coming up before, when they're puppies, then you have a better shot at landing them. Yep. Uh, Miami Killian, uh, a school that's obviously produced some guys that have, that have ended up at Miami, Jaquan Johnson, uh, Sheldrick Redwine, uh, they've got a kid this year who's going to USF, uh, Damian Gill, a 6'4 230-pound edge rusher. He's got a younger brother, Dylan Gill, who's an Under Armour All-American invite. He's got offers from Louisville uh, and a couple of other ACC schools. He's in the 25 class. He's 6'4 215. He's an interesting guy to watch because he projects to have the kind of size that Miami wants at that linebacker position. So I would say keep note of him. Um I'm trying to go through this as quickly as possible and just make meaningful comments. Kobe Howard. You remember the kid who tore his ACL at Mario's camp uh, yeah. when he first took over? 
He was living in Pensacola. He's moved down. He's going to my uh, to Davy uh, Western now. He's a six foot, one hundred seventy five pound receiver. Tennessee, LSU, Florida, Miami offers. He told me he really likes Tennessee. So even though Mario and him have a great relationship, I'd say Tennessee leads for this kid. He's a 25 kid. You will hear a lot about him in the next two years. Um, let's scroll on down. American Heritage, uh, which has always been a school where Miami's had trouble, right? Because Patrick Sertan coached there, Mike Rumpf coached there. And for whatever reason, they haven't been able to pull in a bunch of really good Heritage kids. Uh, I don't expect necessarily for that to change, but there are names I want you to know about. And one of them is 2026 receiver Malachi Tony. Uh, he's 5'10", 170 pounds. He started as a freshman alongside Brandon Innes in his offense. He is, he told me he is 100% in love with Miami. That's a great sign. He's going to be one of the best receivers. He's the kind of guy who you look at and you say, who replaces a Ray Ray Joseph in two years or three years? Malachi Tony is exactly that kind of a receiver. Uh, I think he's a big time target. They also have uh, the son of uh, former NBA player, Roger Bell. Uh, you know Roger Bell. Roger Bell, yeah. Uh, one of your Miami High. He didn't he play at Miami High for a year. Nah, he played at uh, just a Killian. Killian. Okay, yeah. I thought maybe he spent a year at Miami High. Dia Bell, uh, who who is a uh, bigger. I mean, he's listed at six foot one seventy. I know he's bigger than that now. I interviewed the kid. He's going to be one of the top quarterbacks of the twenty twenty six class. He's an interesting name to follow. And then uh, you have Zay Thomas, a cornerback, six two one eighty five. Byron Lewis, a running back. And DeAndre Desinor, a running back. Those are all guys in the 25 classes. But Bell and Tony are in the 26 class. When you watch American Heritage is going to play some nationally televised games like they always do. Those are interesting guys that I want you to be able to, to, to watch here in the next couple of years. Um, I could go on and on. Shamanad's got guys. Chris Ewald, the cornerback who's committed to Michigan in the 25 class. Kamari Williams, a 6'3", 175-pound receiver that Miami is trying to get. Um, in the 25 class as well. Those are interesting names to watch. I'll give you this last one from Miami Norland. Mandrell Desir. He's a 6'3", 227-pound edge rusher in the 2025 class. Norland is going to be one of the best uh, programs in the state this year. They'll be competing with Central uh, to win a state title. Uh, they'll be an interesting team to watch. And, and I'll say this, uh, their coach, uh, Daryl Heidelberg, has a great relationship with Mario uh, and the coaches at Miami. So I don't think uh, Norland will be pushing anybody away from from the Hurricanes. Did I, did I did I drown you with too much information, Carlos? I feel like not I'm at not... all. You got me you got me all caught up. Sometimes I uh, I go in, in my rabbit hole. I dig my head in the ground like an ostrich when I'm working. <laughs> Lots of things fly over my head. But thank you for catching me up. Yeah, I just wanted everybody to have a list of of some names from some of my work, and and uh, so we'll we'll dive into the mailbag, and that's how we'll wrap this puppy up here. Uh, I'm going here to stuff that we've gathered here in the last couple of days. Uh, all right. This is from Jesse Blanco TV. Uh, the position group with the biggest question mark after wide receivers is safety to me. Like I said, yeah, I think I still think it's defensive tackle because I'm not totally convinced uh, that uh, they have enough talent at that position. I think Leonard Taylor is going to do his best to have an elite year. I think Branson Dean is going to be solid. But that's the kind of position where you need to be four or five deep. And I think there yep. may be only two or three deep. Yep. Um, all right. This is from GD Jr. Jr. 38G. Big picture. How much confidence do you both have that Mario can bring us to prominence? What would you consider successful after four years? That's a that's a good, deep, penetrating question there, Carlos. Wow. Listen, inquiring minds want to know. Um, <laughs> so I, I believe Mario has the ability to recruit. Um, 
and land enough talent to make this program relevant again, or at least get it on its way to being relevant. Now, the rest of it has to do with the coaching staff having success on the field and continuing to build that momentum and land even better players. So I think this year and next year are critical to continue landing uh, top-tier players. If they stumble this season or they stumble the season after next, after after this the season after this season, I think then there's going to be a problem with continuing to build that program. Um, they need to consistently get better. They need to consistently put players in the NFL. They need to consistently show they're improving players that they recruit. Um, and and if they don't, then it's going to be a problem because there are other their rivals are doing it. Other people around the country are doing it um, that are at the top level that are elite. So in four years, what do I believe to be successful? Four years from now, I think you know being a top ten team, being a top five team, competing for a playoff spot, or actually if it expands to twelve being in the playoffs on a year-in, year-in basis. So in year four, they should be in the playoffs, I would say. Yeah, I, I think that's an ideal goal to get to that point, right? To be in the hunt for a playoff spot by 2026. That would be... Right, year five. Year five. Um, I think the reality is it's going to hinge on what he does in year two. I think this season is going to be huge because he has yeah. gone back to the scheme that Manny Diaz used on both offense and defense. He's basically scrapped his own plans and said, I don't have the personnel to play the way that I want to play. I'm going to adapt to what we have talent wise on this team right now. Um, I think it's going to be pivotal for Miami to win eight or nine, eight or nine games this season and to finish with a top 15 recruiting class. If they don't, if, if we are having another seven-win season with a bunch of disappointing losses. And a 24th recruiting class, something like that? I, I don't think Mario is going to have success here. I think, unfortunately, uh, they could be left in the dust. Florida State could take off uh, and be a team that makes the playoff this year. Um, and, and Florida is always going to have the advantage of playing in the SEC. And I mm -hmm. think that is a big hurdle. I think the money will make a difference because I do believe that eventually, at some point, the Big Ten and the SEC – are going to move to start paying players directly. And that might be something without any sort of real leadership in, in college sports that becomes a reality. And that's where the TV dollars go. So yeah. um, I, I, I just think that this is such a pivotal year for Miami. It cannot be the mediocrity that it has been. They have to show life. They have to play well and they can't be embarrassed. So I, I would say for me, what would I consider successful after four years that they get to 10 wins after four years. And this is a roster that can compete for a playoff spot. Absolutely. And I think the, the one thing stopping, or at least one of the few things stopping uh, universities from going to that model of being the ones to directly pay the, uh, the players themselves is then they have to consider those players employees, which comes with a whole other host of issues, whether it be workers compensation uh, benefits and all sorts of things. Yeah, well, we'll see how they how they uh, maneuver it, right? These these greedy dudes know what they're doing, Carlos. They uh, if they can that's get out they, of it, that's why they haven't done it yet. That's right. It <laughs> it, it may get there though. This it's is easier. It's easier to pay them through a third party and make them contractors than it is to make them employees. Trust me. Yep. Mike Jones, Jonesy713, uh, sends me this question: UM's defense usually has a knack for getting exposed in the middle of the field on pass plays. From what you see, in, is is uh, Gidry's defense going to contain that? I don't think so. I, I think Gidry's entire defense is predicated on bringing pressure. And if the pressure doesn't get there in time and the quarterback sidesteps the pressure and, and, and has a space in the open field, Miami will be exposed. And it's going to be up to guys like Cam Kitchens and James Williams to make the tackle in the open field. They don't do that. It's uh, sayonara. Look, my... When you play that aggressive style defense, Carlos, that is what you're susceptible to. When you bring linebackers on pressure and you don't drop anybody in coverage, 
you can get beat big. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what it is. It's a risk reward, right? You're, you're trying to put as much pressure as you can on the quarterback and make him make quick decisions. But if you give him enough time to where you're leaving yourself vulnerable on the back end and he's able to make the read and make the throw, then you're in trouble. Um, unless you have extremely superior athletes that just cover a lot of ground and make plays, which thus far the only one that's shown in that ability is Cam Kitchens because James Williams' coverage skills have been hit or miss. This is from Marcus Williams, Money Kane. The season is a success if dot, dot, dot. The Hurricanes are 8-4 and four at the end of the regular season. Uh, if they're better than that, even better. If they get a bowl win with that 8-4 and four season, then it's it's a really successful season. Um, anything over 8-4 and four in terms of wins uh, in the regular season, 9-3, and 10-2, I think they should really celebrate it. This is from Hurricane Thang239. Uh, um, I'm hearing about all the receivers except Shamar Kirk. Any intel on him and his progression in camp so far? Uh, look, it's great to get excited about receiver transfers. Um, you know, we had a lot of excitement about Colby Young uh, when he first came into the program last year uh, out of JUCO. But what I would tell you is how long did it take Colby Young to kind of get his act together as a JUCO transfer? They don't just sort of step in and, and automatically dominate. Uh, he played at Reedley College in California. I think you got to give Shamar Kirk a little bit more time before you can judge him. I certainly think there's guys that are more familiar with the system that Miami's running because they played in in the spring. So if you're not hearing something after five practices, don't worry. Give Shamar Kirk some time. I agree. Uh, this is Otto Liller uh, on Twitter. Optimally, game one versus Miami, Ohio is domination on both sides of the ball. But if we don't show both, Will it be more important to you that we, A, are cranking out touchdowns at will, or B, suffocating them on defense? This is, of course, as we head into week two versus AM. Thanks. Um, what I would like to see is, is, a, is a disciplined football team, right? You don't want to see the Hurricanes go out there in game one and commit a bunch of penalties and look terrible with false starts, misalignments, um, personal fouls on defense, offsides on defense, um, having guys tossed out of the game because they're, they're, uh, they're hitting helmet to helmet, you know, so that to me is tar with targeting. So that to me is key. I want to see a disciplined football team, which means they're, they're receptive to coaching, which means they've they've improved over camp. They've been taking in what they've been taught and they're executing. If you're doing that, if you're executing, then at the end of the day, you should be dominating a team that you're more talented than. Um, you shouldn't be giving them unforced errors and giving them easy opportunities. The other thing I want to see is not turn the football over and create turnovers. If you could do those two things in game one, I think you're looking good um, for the rest of the season because you're protecting the football and you're generating more more opportunities for your offense and taking opportunities away from their offense. You know, I would rather see them uh, bully Miami, Ohio, 28 nothing. Maybe just don't end up scoring because the uh, drop pass here, drop pass there, and this field goal. But if they physically dominate them and they show to be the dominant team and they win 28 nothing, they still won by four touchdowns. So that, to me, looks good. It's going to take a while. To me, I think you're likely going to see um, the offense probably be a little bit more ahead of where it was last year coming into the season just because it's a little bit more familiar than it was. And I think the defense might struggle early on because of what we said, the risk-reward being uh, pressure-heavy, being intent on movement up front. So you're going to give up some big plays and some points. But I think at the end of the day, you're probably going to see a, a 21 to 24-point win against Miami, Ohio, where Miami, Ohio probably scores maybe 20, 24 points themselves, maybe. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't think it matters uh, what the score is at the end. Uh, obviously, you want Miami to not have to be in a dogfight against Miami of Ohio. I think to me, it's what you said, dominance up front. That's where they supposedly made the biggest upgrades, right? The offensive and defensive lines. I want to see them win there because that's what Mario's about. Mario's about winning that battle. I don't want to see them pushed around. And they were pushed around by a lot of different people last year. So yeah. win the battle up front, set the tone. Um, you know, if you Protect have a couple- Tyler Van Dyke. You're going to have miscues. There's going to be blown assignments on offense and defense. Yeah. It's it's natural. This this team isn't good enough yet to just steamroll anybody. Um, but I want to see the physical nature of this team against an, a, a max school. I want them to look the part. I want them to look like an SEC Big Ten team uh, up front. Um, yeah. All right. This is for uh, CoolBlue87 on Twitter. TVD for Heisman is his name. How is FSU and UF out recruiting Miami? With the season starting soon, it doesn't seem like those teams will collapse for us to take their recruits. And we are prone to not having we are prone to not having a good season. Well, we kind of covered this earlier when I talked a little bit about what a good job Florida State is doing. Florida is not winning necessarily in Florida on the recruiting trail. They're winning out of state. Uh, uh, Billy Napier is, uh, you know, a guy who's had a lot of success in Louisiana and Texas and other places. That's where they're getting their recruits. So um, I think, you know, I'll explain it again. I think Florida being in the SEC gives them a huge advantage. Everybody wants to play in the SEC. A lot of of the best players in the country want to play in the SEC. And so it doesn't matter if you're six and seven in the SEC. It matters if you're five and seven in the ACC. And I think uh, where you play matters nowadays. Right, because at the end of the day, what you want is to be able to put your tape up against some of the best competition in the country and show the NFL that you're draft worthy, so you can be able to cash a check at the end of the at, at the end of your career, right? And what better place to do it than the SEC? If your team's mediocre in the SEC, but you're putting up good tape against the best competition in the country, that makes you a lot more dollars than playing for a five and seven ACC team and playing against competition that's meh. Right. Um, this is from Vic Vassell, Coach Vic for Will the Canes have a thousand yard rusher and a three thousand yard passer? Um, I think they'll have a three thousand yard passer. I don't know about a thousand yard rusher because I think they may split the carries a lot. Um, unless they figure out that one guy is going to be the dominant running back, but I think they'll split the carries enough to where maybe you'll have a few guys with 700, 600, 500, somewhere in that range. Yeah, I, I agree. I think three thousand yard passer if Tyler. Went- Tyler Van Dyke's healthy. He'll hit 3,000 yards. I think he's got better receivers uh, this year to throw the ball to. He'll have some big plays. Um, I'm just not sure about a 1,000-yard rusher because I think Mark Fletcher will take a, take over at some point, maybe not in the beginning of the year, but the midway point, and that may skew some numbers for guys. But they're going to be yep. a better running team in my mind. Um, yep. This is from Jake Campbell, the one coach soup. If Miami has 5,000 yards in total offense, that equals how many wins? I ask because that is usually a high, usually a sign of solid offense, and they haven't done it a ton. In 2016, they had nine wins. In 2017, they had 10 wins. In 2021, seven wins. But one of their worst defensive seasons, they gave up 25 points in 10 of 12 games. Um, I to don't... me, it's, it's more about points per game than it is about total yardage. Yeah, You could have a ton of total yardage, and you're not scoring points because you're not finishing drives, and it doesn't yeah. make a difference. Uh, I agree. I, I, it's scoring. You got to score more than 35 points a game in college football today. And I think Miami will probably be somewhere in the 32 to 33 points a game range, which may cost them, uh, a game against North Carolina and NC state two games on the road. You may be in a slug fest there where it's a 35, 31 type game. Uh, you want to be, you want to have 35 that night, not 31. 
If you're going to be an eight win, nine win team, you're going to be somewhere between 34 and 37 points again. Yeah. Um, this is from Corey Lowe um, on Twitter. Has there been any news on commits following the barbecue at the end of July? It's been pretty quiet. Thanks. Um, look, here's what I'll tell you guys about all these festivities. It is awesome to come down to South Florida, isn't it? Right. Like to come down and have a free barbecue thrown for you um, has nothing to do with football. <laughs> Has nothing to do with whether or not you're going to sign with the school. I think Miami fans, look, I, I know the recruiting websites. This is what they do. They got to report on everything happening. We had such and such visitors here. These guys love the U. They're always going to say what um, the recruiting websites want them to say. How do you feel about Miami? Oh, I feel great. I this I came here because I really love this place. You know when somebody really loves this place, when they sign that national letter of intent. And yeah. I, I think you, you need to pay attention more to crystal balls and whispers than you do visits because kids nowadays want to go everywhere. They want to be at every place to enjoy a party to, or, or, you know, enjoy free food, <laughs> to be and hang out with friends and potential teammates. They might even be trying to recruit guys other places. So I, I, don't worry about these barbecues and little Listen, get togethers. I think the biggest failure of this barbecue is that Mario hasn't gotten me or you over there to grill some churraco yeah. and some chorizo and make our own stuff over there. Because if they did, these kids would be committing on the spot, my man. <laughs> I agree. Uh, this is from Pump28. Uh, by the Texas A&M game, what is the two deep at linebacker and cornerback looking like from what you can gather up to at this point? I honestly have no no clue, guys. Uh, I think based on, on my conversations with these coaches, I would say – uh, Wesley Besaint will be uh, the weak side linebacker. Um, the, the starting middle linebacker is going to be Maui Goa, Francisco Maui Goa. I think the backup at middle linebacker will be Corey Flagg. And I think the backup uh, at weak, weak side linebacker will be KJ Cloyd, the transfer from Louisville. Those are the four guys that I think will be in the rotation of linebacker. And I would say at cornerback, um, to Corey Couch will probably start in the slide. You'll have Jaden Davis on the outside. Um, and uh, probably Devontae Brown from UCF. Now, by the Texas A&M game, could that switch? Yes. I think I don't. I, I think cornerback is a much more fluid situation, and yeah. we will see at the end of camp uh, who sort of emerges there. All right, this is from uh, Reardo60. I can't even pronounce the name on there. The ship has sailed, but still wondering how Cristobal got both the offensive and defensive coordinators wrong. You think he got them wrong? Listen, I think they believe they got him wrong because there's not the big names that they wanted. I mm -hmm. think system-wise, I think he made the right choice to install the sorts of systems that they're going with. Right. Now, if they execute it or not, well, that remains to be seen. But I think the systems they put in place, I think, are the best for uh, the current talent on the roster and the talent you want to attract down the road. Yeah, I would say this to everybody who who has sort of ignored my ploys in the past. Uh, it, it doesn't matter if you can pay a coordinator a lot of money, they want to go to a place that has talent, that has players that they can win with, that can make themselves look good on the resume. And frankly, Miami didn't have that at the end of last season. Uh, they brought in a guy who won the Broyles Award and it completely flopped in their face. They brought in a guy who's been in a lot of places, made a lot of money in Kevin Steele. Defense didn't work. Um, I don't know that you have the right and wrong coordinator per se anymore. There's only so many guys that I think are really special at it. Clemson went out and they got a special coordinator in Garrett Riley. He will be a head coach one day um, because somebody's going to trust him to do it. I think the guys that Miami got are lifelong hungry coordinators who want to prove themselves. And I like that perspective maybe a little bit more than guys who have proven it and are just looking to be in a comfortable situation. Or that are less willing to build relationships with the kids. 
and want to sit back on their their sort of uh, resume yeah. and wrestling laurels and say, look, you need to listen to me because I am who I am and do things my way and not work as hard as these young hungry guys. This is from Rubicon, Cat 5 Hurricanes. Are we going to the Big Ten or not? I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> My DeLorean is in the shop right now, so I can't go 88 miles an hour and go into the future and tell you. But, hey, let's see. Fingers crossed. I'd, let's let's have a super ACC. You know what? Kick Florida State and Clemson out of there. Bring Notre Dame in, and we'll, we'll make our own conference where, where people want to join. I think they will be in the Big Ten in six to seven years. Um. Any, heard any rumblings of Yum's plans in regards to conference realignment? We kind of touched on that just now. That was from Brian Haley. Um, offensive and defensive lives, are they improved? And if, and if so, by how much? This is from G on Twitter. How, how much better are they on the offensive? Are they supremely elite better? Or are they just kind of better than they were? I don't know if they're elite better, but I think I could tell you they are above average better. They are near top tier ACC top offensive line better because their center is much better. Um, their left tackle is probably going to be is a question, but if Mirabal correct and he's better than, than John Campbell was left year last year, at left tackle who was up and down. I, I like Jalen rivers. Then they're better at left tackle. Uh, they're better at the guard spot with JV and Cohen, you know, Inez Cooper, they're really high on at that right guard spot. He played well at the end of last season. Um, and you know what? You got the freshman at right tackle. Uh, Francis Malagoa, who they're very high on as well, and who's supposed to be a stud and is handling his own in, in practice. So I think overall, you know, I think Malagoa is better than DJ Scaife. Um, I think Cohen is better than what we had at guard last year. Inez Cooper to me, question mark. Uh, Jalen Rivers, question mark at left tackle, although I'm leaning towards him being better than than Jonathan Campbell. And I know we're better at center. So I think overall they're going to be better. Are they going to be a dominant elite offensive line? Maybe not, probably not. But I think they'll be above average to top tier in the ACC. Defensive I line? Eh. I think they're top four uh, as far as an offensive line. Defensive line, I think they're better on the edge. I think yeah. Ruben Bain um, and Nigel e. Kelly are going to be two really, really good pass rushers. So I think they're better at on, at on the edge. I don't know that they're better at defensive tackle. Right. I think they have four really good edge guys that they're going to bring in and out, and we'll have all other guys that are developing on that side. Um, they're Like I said, they're going to have to use their speed and their quickness uh, since they don't have the size inside. This is the last one from Andrew V underscore 17 uh, is Lou Cristobal, the transfer on scholarship. How does the backup center competition look? Thank you, Andrew, for the question. Um, I don't know if he's on scholarship. I don't think it matters uh, nowadays. They'll they'll do whatever funny math they have to do. Obviously, Mario's his uncle. So I don't know what kind of exceptions Miami can get for it. At some point, I'll try and find out. But I don't think it's that important because um, I don't think he's going to play. I think he's there for practice and to kind of just be on the team. Um, and then as far as the backup center position is concerned, I think it's Logan Sagapolu's job. Uh, I think as long as he stays healthy, uh, he's probably the guy who slots in there. If Samson Lola can't be trusted yet to move into one of those tackle spots and then they shift other guys around. So I would say he's probably the backup center until Logan. I mean, until uh, Samson Lola is ready. Sounds good to me. I did yeah. hear that uh, Lou Cristobal did have a, an NIL deal with El Rey de la Fridas, but other than that, I've heard nothing. <laughs> Carlos, fun conversation. I know we we talked for a long time. This is one of our longest episodes. I appreciate you coming on and doing the show with me. I know I kept you out of the Barbie movie, so I feel like it's an even trade. Hey, man, whatever. You, do what you got to do. Thank you so much for the assistance. I appreciate the assist today. <laughs> Make sure you tune in to Carlos's uh, MIA All Day Pod. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, on at L Leto, thirteen oh seven. 
1307. Uh, you can read my stories at The Athletic. Follow me on Twitter at Manny underscore Navarro. And if you're really, really bored, you can go look at my uh, appearance on the Paul Feinbaum show last Friday uh, where I was right here doing a segment with him talking about the ACC. He had me on the show. So hopefully I get some more TV time on ESPN, Carlos. I like that. Yeah, man. That's where the dollars come in, too. Yeah, hopefully. We'll see. Raise raise that profile. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Wide Right. I don't know when we will do the next episode. I know that Carlos and I will hook up again and do more stuff. I'll probably have Charles Fishbein of Elite Scouting Services on to talk some recruiting with me at some point. Uh, we had Frank Tucker from Rivals. Uh, there'll be different people on to, to, to talk about the Canes going forward. But uh, stay safe out there. Enjoy the rest of your summer before school starts. For those of you starting school, talk to you soon. Peace. It's all about the-